Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. to Authors on the Air. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I am your host, Pam Stack. You know, I have a bucket list for my favorite authors, and I have been blessed several times over to to talk to Ann Hellerman and William Kent Kruger, um, Kent in person, actually, and a couple times on this show, and Ann, who uh, has graciously allowed me to keep in touch with her since I last spoke to her. Um, with the with that in mind, last I, time I spoke to Ann, I asked her, would you come back and be a guest host? And she said yes. And I said, who do you want to talk to? And she said Kent Kruger, which I thought was so fitting because these are two of our literary treasures in America who whose books and writing centers around indigenous Americans. It is my honor to present my guest host for today, Ann Hillerman, who will be talking to Kent Kruger. Ann, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Pam. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to spend some time talking to Kent Kruger. And uh, thank you to everyone who is listening to us in these, in these days of isolation. So uh, speaking of, about how the world has changed since um, Kent's uh, uh, first or last live, live event back in March, um, Kent, how... How has the uh, COVID, uh, the, the change in the world, the isolation that all of us are experiencing from COVID, how has that affected your life and your and your work over these past few months? Uh, well, I have to. Hello, Anne. It's so lovely <laughs> to be speaking with you today. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me as you host this show. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, you know, um, the truth is it's uh, simplified my life in so many ways. Um, I just had the uh, paperback edition of my latest novel, This Tender Land. Um, It released in uh, May, late May. And typically, well, in fact, I had planned a fairly long, extensive tour to promote uh, that edition. But because of the COVID virus and our isolation and uh, and really inability and inadvisability of traveling i'm doing everything virtually these days so i don't have to leave my house um i have uh, kind of pared down all of my usual outside activities and 
and it has um, been in that regard kind of a blessing. And I have to tell you honestly, I have been really um, productive during this whole period. And maybe again, it's because the distractions are no longer there, the travel is no longer there, and I can really focus on my work. So I feel a little guilty saying all of these things because <laughs> I know, I know the coronavirus has had such a profound, uh, tragic impact on so many lives. Um, but for me, there has been kind of a silver lining to it. And you, how, how has that affected you? You know, I would basically say the same. I think uh, part of being being a writer uh, involves spending quiet time just by yourself or with your imaginary friends. And so in a way, it was a blessing to not have to um, say to friends who wanted to have lunch, oh, sorry, I can't because I'm writing, or to maybe accept those social invitations and always be feeling that pull back to whatever the the work project was that I was that I was dreaming of. It's really been kind of great to be able to uh, be a hermit without guilt. But I have to say, <laughs> there was, I had one, one heartbreak because of COVID. I had a wonderful invitation to go to a big uh, noir mystery conference in France, in Lyon. I'd never been to Lyon. And my French, my French publisher was paying my way, and we were going to have a lunch in Paris. And, and it was in, in April. And so I kept looking at what was happening with COVID in France and what was happening with COVID in the U.S. and what was happening with the airlines. And finally, it, I just thought, I cannot do this. At that, my, my, my husband is in his, in his mid-80s and had a lot of health issues. And as much as I wanted to go, I thought, what if I go and I can't come back? And I kept secretly hoping that they would cancel the conference, but that the, <laughs> the French people were determined that it was going to go on. So anyway, I canceled, and then like two weeks later, they canceled the whole conference. So it was, I was sad to not do that. But like I said, I was really happy, like you were saying, to have time to just pare away all of the kind of non-essentials and focus on my writing. Have you, you know, and here's, here's been the, another upside for me. I've been doing an enormous amount of uh, biking um, because the gyms are closed where I typically would work out. And, Anne, I'm, I'm seeing things out in this world that I never stopped to take the time to see before. And I'm just finding that so delightful. You know, I would I would say the same. I'm lucky enough to live a, a little bit outside of Santa Fe. And because I, I'm not doing so much social stuff, I've had time to just kind of sit on, sit on my deck and watch the birds. And it's been, it's been really kind of nice. And it makes me wonder why I was doing so much non-essential <laughs> stuff before. <laughs> oh, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You, yeah. you have to examine your priorities. Exactly one of the things right. that one of the things I wonder about greatly, and I know uh, we sort of talked a little bit about this in our email exchanges, is what's going to be the lasting effect of all of this on writing, on publishing, on everything that we do, um, in, in just in terms of the creation and in terms of the promotional stuff. What's your take on that? Well, 
I think one good thing really have been all of these Zoom book clubs, you know, so it's enabled me to kind of talk to people face-to-face through through technology, whereas normally I would have said, oh, sorry, I don't think I can go to South Carolina or, you know, this, this trip to Brownsville just doesn't fit with my schedule. Now it's basically just another hour in front of my computer. So I think that's been a that's been a good thing, but the downside of it is in those in those person to person meetings. I think people feel more comfortable coming up to you and saying, you know, in such and such a book, I really liked that character, and I wish you'd done more with her. Or in such and such a book, you had um, somebody going somewhere, and that's really not how you'd get there. Those kind of, <laughs> you know. Oh, you like it when people come up and tell you those things. Well, <laughs> when they do it in person, they do it a little more gently than when they do it in an email. <laughs> Those are the moments when I grit my teeth and smile and say, well, thank you for your input. I will uh, consider it. (laughs) Kent, do you find that people also have lots of story ideas for you when when you're doing those those in-person meetings? Oh, oh, yes. (laughs) I'm sure every writer does. We have the fans that come up, I love your work, I love your work. And I've got a story I know you're going to want to tell. Um, And, you know, that's fine. I'll listen. Uh, Often it's, my father did this, and I would love to have you tell this story. And my response always is, but that's not my story. That's your story. And I think you should do your best to, uh, to, um, you know, get it out there to people and however you do that. Right, right, right. Yeah, I get a lot. I get I get a lot of that too. And it's you know it I it really is wonderful to have an opportunity to encourage people to tell their own stories. Oh, I and think, I think that's so important. You know, I think so. In my own case, my father, when he passed away, I had tried to get him to record. Um, I gave him a tape recorder and and sat with him, talk about your life, talk about this part of your life, talk about that part of your life, and um, he tried, but he just really. He, he he bridled at that for whatever reason. And I'm so sorry now I didn't get it all down, didn't really convince him to do that because all of those memories are lost. So much of my ability to understand who he was is gone now. And so I keep encouraging people when they come up to me, my mother or my father, uh, I, I did this, uh, write it down, write it down so it's not lost. Right. Or like you're saying, even even get a, get somebody to record it. I mean, now there are all of these um, entrepreneurial uh, companies that are helping, you know, do, even doing doing videos of people telling their stories. I think whatever the media, just to get that, get those stories saved somewhere so the grandchildren and the great grandchildren will kind of understand what it what it was that got them to where they are now. Hey, Anne. Have you yeah. always wanted to be a writer? I know you're. I mean, your father was such an icon <laughs> in our in our genre. Um, were you always wanting to write, or did you say, oh, "I'm not going to do what Dad does" because or whatever, and oh. then you found yourself doing it despite that? So how did that go? It, it's kind of it's sort sort of both. I always, I mean, as a kid, I always kept a journal. I always loved to write stories. I think partly because uh, my mom and my dad were both so uh, supportive of the life of the imagination. 
you know, instead of saying, you know, yeah, that's fine, but you need to do the dishes or why not, you know, (laughs) they would say, not only is that fine, but they would say, look right here where you said so-and-so was sitting under a tree. What if you said, what if you told, told him what kind of a tree it was and what the air smelled like and how the sun was glancing off the leaves? So it wasn't, I mean, I, I was so amazingly lucky and blessed to have parents like that who really su- supported that kind of, of creative life. But yeah, then when, of course, then when I got to be a teenager and people would say to me, so are you going to be a teacher like your mom or a writer like your dad? I would have to say, no, 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 not me. I'm going to do something else. So that's why it took me so long to get through college. (laughs) But eventually, (laughs) eventually it dawned on me that, yeah, that's where my heart lay. So, you know, I, I went into journalism, but I never really thought about writing novels until my dad had died. And then... I had published uh, a, a nonfiction book about the places in Navajo land that my dad loved. And uh, my husband and I went on a book tour. And as part of that tour, I ran into so many people who loved my dad's work. And they so they would ask if there were going to be any more mysteries in the series. And, you know, if my dad had something at the publisher, something in a desk drawer, something on his computer. And I would have to say, no, he really took care of business. And then after a while, it dawned on me that just like those fans, I was, as much as I was missing my dad, I also was missing those stories. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the, I guess, the, the transition point for me from doing nonfiction, which I had loved, to taking the leap into the world of fiction. Well, was it scary? Scary. It was scary, but it was lovely. Uh. Yeah. It's oh, like good. You're, you're, yeah. And I, I mean, I love nonfiction. And, you know, I might want to go back to it someday, but gosh, I, there's fiction is just so, it's like you're, you're standing on that, on the, the cliffside and you're looking down at that beautiful water and it's a big leap and then you just take a breath and jump. Oh, for me, fiction writing is nothing but freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about, let's talk a little bit about, about this Tenderland. Oh, I love to talk about the Central Land. <laughs> so it's it's such a big and amazing book. How how do you describe it? Epic. It's my <laughs> epic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, let me tell you a little bit about where the story came from. And uh, when I was 11 years old, uh, I was in the fifth grade, And toward the end of that year, our teacher read to the class The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. She did it by reading half an hour after lunch every day. And I loved that that book. Um, I loved hearing about this kid who was, you know, a lot like me. And he was out there having these great adventures on the Mississippi River. And uh, then after that, of course, I had to read Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And I loved that one. And honestly, across my, my whole uh, life as a writer, I have wanted to write an updated version of Huckleberry Finn. Um, and uh, uh, maybe five years ago now, I guess it was, <laughs> I, I finally launched into it. And this tender land was the result, this book that I'd wanted forever to write. I was finally able to put down on paper. And I have to tell you, I, I have two favorite books of mine. I don't know, every writer probably has one or two favorite books. Mine are Ordinary Grace, the standalone that preceded 
this tenderland and is, in my opinion, the companion novel and this tenderland. I I loved Ordinary Grace too, and as of I mean before Ordinary Grace, I think your your reputation was based on the Cork, the Cork O'Connell series, and of course people love those books. Was it a big a big step for you to say, wait a minute, I'm stepping away from this series and I'm going to write a totally totally different kind of mystery? You know, um, for twenty years I belonged to a mystery writers critique group. Um, we call ourselves get this creme de la crime. <laughs> and uh and I had read and all of my Cork O'Connor manuscripts to the group and had been critiqued by them. And then I started writing the manuscript for Ordinary Grace and I remember the first time I took a piece of that, the uh the prologue to read to the group, I was so I had never been that nervous about reading a piece to them because it was so different. It would be so different from anything that they had heard me read. It was going to be so different from anything that fans of my Cork O'Connor series had seen before. But this was really where my heart was, and I knew this was where I was going. But I was just scared to death that maybe I was, you know, way off track. They loved it. Uh. (laughs) uh, And so... Transitioning to the writing of that particular story, in all honesty, was not difficult at all. I have to tell you, Anne, it was one of the easiest stories I've ever written. It was meant to be. Just That's to always be. how I felt. <laughs> and I had the same sense about uh, This Tender Land as I was writing it. It just flowed. Um, I, I, never, um, I, I was never stuck. I never doubted the direction the story was going. Um, as I discovered the story along with the, the four vagabonds at the heart of it and readers now who read it, um, I was just amazed and, um, and so gratified that somehow, and I often felt this, this story is being given to me. You know, I had that when I was reading it, I sort of had that same feeling that it was just, it was just flowing like the river. One one thing that I, if I had been trying to write a book set during the uh, uh, Great Depression of the late twenties, early thirties, I would have uh, been, I, I might have been sort of overwhelmed by all of the many fascinating aspects of American culture at that time that could have been included in this book. How did you? Uh, how, how can I say that? How did you refine the setting to have it be so perfect for Odie and his buddies as they were going down the river? Well, I'm going to talk about this, and then I'm going to throw that question right back at you. Um, I did an enormous amount of research um, in preparation for the writing of this story. We, we're, we're so blessed here in Minnesota, uh, particularly in the Twin Cities. We have uh, here in St. Paul, Uh, a place called the Minnesota History Center. And inside the History Center, there's a section called the Gale Family Library, which is, in essence, an archive of all of the newspapers ever published in Minnesota, right from the get-go. So I spent hours and hours and hours in the Gale Family Library pouring over microfilmed newspapers of the day, um, just gobbling up details 
what were the fashions of the day? What were the prices of the day? What were the concerns of the day? What were the issues here in Minnesota? What were the issues in the larger country? All of that, so that when I sat down to write the story, I had already created that backdrop in my own thinking. I knew it well enough so that I could go into it. And then, of course, I'm sure you do the same thing. You continue your research as you're writing and as uh, specific details that you need to know about go into it. Um, But like any good writer who does research, the question is what do you include and what do you leave out? And I guess for me it was kind of an organic thing. Whatever felt right to put in, I put in. Um, And and there were a couple of instances when I included – details just to make sure the reader knew what the time frame was and what was going on and like you i hope and like most uh, good writers i have a really fine editorial eye <laughs> not for me my editor who said oh, okay love all of this but you know you can leave this out and you can leave that out that's an intrusion <laughs> don't we all need a good editorial eye so we have a great deal of help in kind of sifting through what's really relevant to the story and what can be left out yeah, I, I I know sometimes when I'm doing my own research, I get there, there's it's so seductive, and I love learning stuff, particularly things that are like a, like totally su- surprising. Then I think, well, this needs to be in the book, and maybe it'll stay in for a while. And then I think, oh well, I have a special file called outtakes where all that interesting <laughs> stuff goes. <laughs> yeah, never throw away anything. Never throw away anything. Yeah. <laughs> So when you when you're researching these days, um, do you uh, do you still travel to the places you're writing about, or do you already know them well enough that you can conjure uh, sensually everything you need to have in order to create that for the reader on the page? Oh, I still travel. Although, I mean, that's one of the real problems now with COVID. The, yeah. Uh, I mean, the Navajo Nation has been hit so hard by the virus that they've had basically they've closed their borders to anybody who doesn't doesn't live there. They even at, at one point the the interstate highway that goes through was even closed. And so I'm the the book that I'm working on now is going to be set near Navajo Mountain. And then at Glen Canyon, which and the and Lake Powell, which borders the the Navajo Nation, and the Navajo Nation has a marina there. I've been there, but I really, really, really need to go back. But in the meantime, I'm uh, working on on other parts of the story and just wishing wishing them well as they deal with deal with all of this. But yeah, it's real, real important to me to be in the places that I'm writing about. So I get a sense of, you know, what it's like there, you know, in the dark, what it's like there in the the season that I'm writing about, you know, what the what the air smells like, what the temperatures like, what the plant you know, plants are, that that, that whole that whole situation. Um going going back to research when you when one one of the of the things that i think impressed me the most about this tender land was your whole depiction of the of sister eve and the revivals Where, did did a lot of that information come from the newspapers that you read well i certainly did my background research for it um i don't know if you know this but in the early part of the uh, 20th century, there was a huge uh, revival movement that swept the country. 
um, evangelical revivalists, uh, think Billy Sunday here or Amy Semple McPherson. Right. Uh, right. By the time uh, uh, in uh, 1932, when this tender land is set, that that movement had pretty much died out in most of the country, with the exception of the South and the Midwest, where you still had lots of tent revival um, meetings going on. Um, so I did all I did my due diligence in terms of uh, reading. Uh, newspaper accounts of the day and that kind of thing. Uh, but I have to tell you, um, uh, Sinclair Lewis and Elmer Gantry <laughs> really helped me out a lot. <laughs> I don't know if you remember your Elmer Gantry, but at one point in Elmer Gantry's uh, life, he becomes involved with a tent revival um, healer, faith healer person, uh, Sharon Falconer. And I have always found her such a wonderfully compelling and complex character uh, that I I kind of fashioned my own sister Eve of the of my sort of Gideon healing crusade after Sharon Falconer. Uh, but you know, and I'm sure you get this. What you do is you do your research, so you've got the factual underpinnings, and then you turn everything over to your imagination, and you just let your imagination run wild. That's what I did. Yeah. 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 Well, I, those scenes and the, I think, um, the, what really, for me, what really brings this, this Tenderland to the, the level of epic are the, the wonderful characters. I mean, they seem, even though they are, you know, back in 1932, they seem like people you could run in today. They're not, they're not like characters. They're like, like flesh and blood people. And one thing that I, I, also found fascinating was uh, uh, Odie and the way as the book goes on, he changes his name. Could you talk a little bit about the power of names and the power of naming? Um, you know, <laughs> this so goes back to both of our uh, understanding and appreciation of the indigenous cultures in this in this country yeah. where names and naming are incredibly important whole ceremonies revolve around them um but i i have to tell you quite honestly that when i'm creating names in my stories um one of three things happens either the name comes to me with a character and those are the best names or the names come uh, while I'm working on the story and I discover the name and the name works. Or I get to the end of the manuscript and the name still doesn't feel right. And I start the process of trying to find the name that, that actually works there. This Tenderland was unusual in that when I hit the end, I loved all of the names that... Um, that I had created for the characters, which is really, I got to uh, tell you honestly, is unusual for me. Odie's name came to me right away because for anybody who's read This Tender Land, you know that it is structured as the Odyssey is structured. Odie and, his, and the, four vag the three other vagabonds experience many of the same kinds of adventures that Odysseus experienced in his um, epic journey from Troy back to Ithaca. So Odie was with me from right from the get-go. Mose, his Native American um, companion, was also with me pretty much right from the get-go. I told you early on that I wanted to write an updated version of Huck Finn. 
in right, my version, right. I always knew that the character of Jim, the runaway slave who accompanies Huck down the Mississippi River, that part was going to be played by a Native American kid. So I knew Mose was going to be a part of it. And then Albert, uh, Odie's brother, and Emmy, little Emmy kind of came into my thinking rather late in the game. Um, but as I, as I created them, their names came pretty naturally along with the characters. They just felt right. Sister Eve, I struggled with just a little bit. I wanted a biblical name. And I tried uh, Naomi, and I tried Ruth, and I tried all kinds of things. <laughs> and damn, Eve just worked perfectly. So she was Sister Eve. Um, you know, I and, thought Eve and, was, was perfect. I, I love that name because of all of the kind of the, the complicated character that goes with the biblical character of Eve. So yeah, I thought you yeah, hit the so bullseye I. there. <laughs> but I had to stumble onto Eve. I had to I had to stumble onto that name. It wasn't just there for me right from the get go. How about you and names? Um, it's kind of the same thing. Sometimes they come to me. They're like part of who the character is, and sometimes they come to me, and then I realize when I get to the end of the book, oh my gosh, I've got an. Oh, say a, a Sarah and a Susan and a yeah. Sheila, and it's like yeah. no, no. Yeah. The reader Been will there, get done too, that. too confused, too many S's. <laughs> so then I have to to rethink it. And I loved what you were saying earlier about native native tradition and naming, and that was one actually one criticism that my my editor had uh, early on. I would have uh, like the 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 official name and then the nickname. That somebody's family would call them, and then the the name that their grandparents would call them, and the editor would say, you know, it's too many names for the same character. And Just I thought, feel well, like the names in a Russian novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it it was. I mean, it was the name was a reflection of who that character was in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I I love the way as as the book goes on that Odie gives himself a new name. It, it kind of is perfect for his new sort of more full of of maturity and confidence role as the story has progressed. So, kudos to you for for that. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Well, going back to what you were saying about the the times, did you come across some some words that you might have used that you thought I shouldn't use because this is a story set in the 1930s? Oh, sure. I had to go back and um, and my copy editor and my editor and my agent all helped me. Oh, wait a minute. This, I think, is an uh, an anachronistic phrase check this out, that kind of a thing. And I did have to uh, alter some things. Um, at one point, for example, I, I come up with a number of... Odie has a har- harmonica throughout the story, and uh, I have Odie refer to it in a number of different ways, mouth organ, etc. And at one point, he calls it a harpoon. Um, and I got that from uh, me and Bobby McGee. Pulled my harpoon out of my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. red bandana. <laughs> and I thought, okay, harpoon. 
and uh, and my copy editor caught it and said, you know, this this phrase wasn't used back then. It came into usage, et cetera, et cetera. So I had to change it. So yeah, um, I tried to be as careful as I could in the creation of the manuscript, but that's why you have editors uh, to help you catch these things. But I did try to get in uh, as many of the... Um, uh, of, of kind of the phraseology of that time that we don't really use anymore, but that would hark back. And, you know, one of the things I did for that was I watched a lot of old movies out of the 30s. <laughs> oh, <laughs> smart. <laughs> yeah, and that's a good, it's a good break from just living in the, in the world of words, too, to move to the absolutely, images. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> what, what is your writing process like? Um, very disciplined, as I think most writers are. Um, I have always just been incredibly regimented in my work. Um, for 40 years, I, I my alarm has gone off at a quarter of six. I get myself up, I get dressed, and I go to a coffee shop where I spend the first two or even three hours of the day writing. Because of the COVID virus, uh, I have exchanged my kitchen counter for a coffee shop, but I still get up uh, at six o'clock or shortly before or occasionally shortly after and uh, and spend the first couple of hours every day writing. Um, I have the most wonderful wife in the world. She has pledged to not getting up out of bed until I'm finished with my writing in the morning <laughs> so as not to disturb me. Um, oh, so that's, that's, that's pretty typical. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, But now I you have to, to make your own lattes? I just, you know, the the quality of the coffee matters less than just having some caffeine and the process. It's all a part of the magic uh, of writing. And I try to write then uh, again in the afternoon for an hour and a half or two hours. I, I shoot to write creatively about four hours every day. And you, when do you write? I'm a morning person, too. I... Uh... Um, I've been my 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 husband had had a lot of health issues, so that had kind of taught me to be a little more flexible about my schedule. Uh-huh. But I but normally mornings I would say I have a a dog who wakes up as it starts to get light, and we go out for a walk, and kind of, she and I sort of talk about what's what the work plan is for the day. And then I make my make some coffee and I'm lucky enough to have an office at home where I can close the door, turn off the phone. And I try to spend, Oh, at least a couple hours totally focused on moving the book in progress from whatever page I'm on to however many pages I can I can get going in those couple hours. Mm-hmm. And then I take a break and then I maybe work on whatever research had threatened to derail me. Like say I'm working and I'm thinking, so what what is the name what is the name of that national forest in those mountains? You know, is it with a C or an S? And it's so tempting to click on Google. <laughs> Which is the, the path to ruin. <laughs> so, I don't know. So I don't know. The internet usually will give you a good starting place, anyway. I think. But uh, you know, I don't you're looking what... for the you're looking for the name of those mountains, and then you find out that somebody saw the watch, and then oh. you're you know, and then you oh. get <laughs> then you're lost. Yeah, yeah, then yeah. you're lost. <laughs> I want to take a moment here to. Um, let everybody know you're listening to Authors on the Air with guest host Ann Hillerman and her guest, 
William Kent Kruger. If you'd like to say hi to either of these wonderful treasures, literary treasures, you may call the studio right now at 374-633-9609. We have about 20 minutes left on the show, so if you're going to call, call now. Um, Wonderful conversation, and you're back, Anne. Thank you. Thank you, Pam. So, yeah, so basically, and, and like you, I try to write every day. And, you, you know, some days are some days I can barely pull myself away to, to, to have some lunch. And some days I'm thinking, why did I decide to do this? Why didn't I become a, you know, a doctor, a cocktail waitress, something else? <laughs> you <laughs> know, I, I, uh, that... I, I, I often get asked, so are you productive every time you sit down? And I'm reminded, I think it was Flannery O'Connor, who was uh, was one of the Southern writers who was uh, religious about her writing time, same two hours every single day. And a reporter once asked her, does the muse visit you every time you sit down? And her response was, no, but I want to be there when she does. Um, so yeah. that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I feel too, that maybe maybe nothing much happens, but I know nothing will happen if I'm out weeding the garden instead of sitting here with with my hands on the keyboard. Although I have to say, too, that sometimes when I've had a hard time writing, a hard time figuring out where the story goes next, even though I try to sort of map it out ahead of time, and then I go to the gym or go out and pull weeds, an idea will come to me that maybe would not have come if I was pushing on it too hard. Do you, yeah. do you notice that same thing? Yeah, that's what happens when I go out for a bike ride. I'll, yeah. It's like my my mind just um, releases and and ideas start flooding in. Then the then the question is, am I going to remember all of this when I get home? <laughs> <laughs> I I always tell myself that I'll remember the best ones, or if I don't, maybe I'll get another chance. Oh, I have had so many experiences where great idea, great idea, haven't been able to get back to it. And then I sit down and I go, oh, crap, what was it? Um, <laughs> so, you know, I should keep a tape recorder with me or something as I'm going along, which a lot of my friends do. A lot of my friends do. Yeah. So what, to, what are you working on now? Well, I just... Um, going back a bit, before COVID, I had a book that was supposed to come out the end of April. And I'm working now with a new editor. So I, and she said, we need, you know, this, this is a really tight deadline. We need this book by the end of December. So I hustled it up and I was pretty happy with it. And like you were saying, I was thinking, thank goodness I have an editor who will help me smooth out the rough spots. So then I didn't hear from her for a long time, and I was getting a little a little nervous. But then she wrote back to me, and she said, well, we're, we are uh, postponing this book until spring of 2021. And I was, I was a little disappointed, but mostly relieved. So that gave me time to answer her questions and to take care of a lot of places where I, I knew in my heart of hearts it should have been better. So anyway, that that book is called Stargazer, and I really like it. Now, I'm waiting for the copy editor to come back to say, well, you know, this happens on Friday, and now you yeah. ha- now it's still Friday, and it's 36 hours later. Something's wrong here. 
you know, all those things yeah. copy editors are so good about. <laughs> Thank God for copy editors. <laughs> no kidding, no kidding. So now I'm I'm thinking about the seventh book in the series, which, as I mentioned, is going to be set in the the country around Blake Powell, and it's going to have uh, one of the one of the plots is. Uh, uh, going going to have to do with some sand paintings that that my my dad when he started this story mentioned about 50 years ago and i think now in the the logic of fiction you know they're they're still there so i'm going i'm i'm play, playing with that that little little theme and yeah that's that's what i how i'm spending my mornings how about you what are you working on i uh, have finished the uh the first full draft of the next in the Cork O'Connor series, number 18 in the Cork O'Connor series. It's called Lightning Strike. It's with my agent right now. I'm waiting to hear back from her on her suggestions for edit for edits. Um, and in the meantime, I'm, uh, I have written two novellas. I'm actually on the second of two novellas. Oh. Uh, just because I wasn't really ready to launch into the next major project. And uh, and I just wanted to see what it would be like to. I've I've written short stories and I've written novels, but I've, this middle ground has always intrigued me a bit. Uh, and so I'm just kind of having a lot of fun. Not under contract. I have no idea what I'm going to do with these pieces, but uh, I'm just finding it a lot of fun. That's the thing. I'm just kind of having a lot of fun during this coronavirus isolation stuff. <laughs> Oddly great. enough. Yeah, that well, that is great. So, are these novellas mysteries? No, not at all. Um, yeah, they're widely separated in terms of time. One takes place during the Great Mississippi Flood of 1928 and 1929. Um, ah. And the other is um, the other is, is unusual in that um, it, I'm following a couple who are at the end of their lives and they are retracing the route across the country they took on their honeymoon. It's called historical markers and the husband has always wanted to stop at every historical marker that they've always passed in their trips, but they're always so focused on getting somewhere. So in this trip, he's stopping at uh, all the historical markers and I'm reliving using the historical markers to kind of help tell the story of their, of their marriage. Um, but these historical markers are on places where I have been before but haven't been in years. And typically, I would be out there right now making sure I know where the markers are, what the land is around it, what do you see, what do you smell, all that stuff you talked about, the sensual stuff. Right, I can't right. do that. So for the first time ever, I am actually relying on Google Maps and um, all kinds of the Internet stuff to uh, create a story. I have no idea if I can do this, Anne, but I'm having a ball. <laughs> it is so much fun to have a chance to reinvent yourself. Yeah. It's just not, I don't know about you. Um, I have never felt particularly constrained by writing in the genre, but it's also kind of liberating to have no expectations in terms of what the story is supposed to do. Right, right, right. You know, I haven't felt constrained either writing writing in, in the genre. In fact, particularly when I was when I was working on my first novel, I found it a huge relief to have those boundaries. To think, you know, I 
I know that I have to I have to have a bad guy. I have to have some people who look like they could be a bad guy but turn out not to be, you know. <laughs> I have to have a, you know, you and and that at the end I have to to end the story so I can move on to the next book. I think if I had been writing a mainstream novel, I probably would, you know, like a, a literary novel. I would probably still be writing it because of not having those boundaries. So I'm awfully glad that 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 my dad was the one who wrote in mysteries and that I was able to, you know, pick up pick up the the idea. And I have to say, when I wrote Spider Woman's Daughter, I wasn't really thinking that it would be the start of continuing continuing the series. I was just thinking, I I love this minor character and I need to give her her own story so the story doesn't end with her always being the the girl who brings the coffee. Yeah. So, yeah, and I yeah. I have to say I love that about what you've done. You've taken characters that were on the periphery and you've put them center stage, and I just love them. Well, thanks. I, you know, I was as I was thinking about this tender land, I was thinking some of those characters are so vibrant. It would be great to build another story around them. I'm not sure that will ever happen. But life is long, and you never know. Well, I know. And they have that, that seductive way of kind of whispering in your ear. Don't you remember you know, me? Yeah. <laughs> what what I had always hoped was I would create characters that would remain in the reader's uh, heart for a very long time. And when what I'm hearing you tell me is, yes, that's exactly what's what's happened. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Well, and I would say the same with Cork. I mean, I really, I, I, you know, I'm calling him by his first name. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I really do feel like he's kind of part of my part of my universe. And whenever I've finished one of his one of his adventures, I'm wondering, so what's what's he up to now? What's he been doing this last year? So, and isn't that one of the beauties of what we do? And and I don't know about you, those series that we love to read, it's. I'm I'm happy when they've got a great plot, but I don't have to necessarily have a great plot because I'm going back to visit the characters. I'm going back to this place that I've come to think of as a, a place I know well. All of that, that comfort level. Yeah. That, Would you like that's... to take a phone call, Anne and, and Kent? Would you like to take a caller? Of course. Okay. Area code 732, oh. you're live. Hi. Oh. Hi. Hi. Hello, caller. This is this is a Frank Feather. I'm I'm living in New Jersey, though my mother is uh, in in Santa Fe. But I've I've always found that Santa Fe has just such a rich atmosphere for authors, and I don't know what it is—the air, the food—I don't know what it is. But and do you ever just get together with all these other authors? Because I read so many of the the well. You know, McGarity, I read some of his. I read, of course, Your Father's and Yours, but even John Nichols and I remember Richard Bradford. I really loved him. But do you ever get together with all those authors and commiserate and find inspiration? There seems to be so many in Santa Fe. You know, Frank, that's a wonderful question. There is a, uh, a, a great guy here who writes biographies, and he started something called the, the New Mexico Writers' Dinner. And every and it's like open to anybody it, – well, it's open to anybody who's published, and then they have scholarships for, say, students at the Institute of American Indian Arts or at Santa Fe Community College, people whose, whose dream is to be a published writer. And we get together 
once a year there's about last year I think there were about three maybe 300 people all together in a big ballroom up at La Fonda. Of course, this year we're not doing it because of the, the virus. But, yeah, there is a really a wonderful, supportive community of writers in New, in New Mexico. And I'm sure that's true in Minnesota, too. Is, is that right, Kent? Oh, sure. We have uh, just a vast number of writers who write in the genre or in an, an, another genre other than the uh, the mystery and, and lots of people who write what are called, you know, what we think of as literary novels. And um, we have um, uh, opportunities to get together, not quite like your dinner. I'm just sitting here thinking, hmm, we, could, we should do that here in Minnesota. You but should a, do it. <laughs> there are lots of writers, but it's a small enough community that we all run into each other periodically, and uh, we'll get together for beers or something uh, in various groups. Yeah, that happens. It's, you know, you it's know, part of the community of, the, of, of writers. I think there's a misconception that it's kind of a – vicious dog eat dog world out there and we're all competing and you know for for readership and i have to say that has definitely not been my experience i have fe- i have felt so supported and encouraged by other writers even people who maybe are writing mysteries that maybe could be considered competition and i think the bottom line is that there's so many stories to be told and so many people reading stories that there's room for every story thank you know you i couldn't call, agree frank. more oh, ahead, thank um... you for your call frank <laughs> <laughs> so long frank <laughs> <laughs> Um, and hello, everybody out there in New Jersey. Um, I, I have found the mystery community to be uh, one of the most supportive, generous communities I've ever been a part of. Um, I just am thrilled to be a member. I want to take this opportunity to, first of all, ask you, Anne, for your website and your social media so that our listeners and readers can find you. Well, my website is uh, com, and I have to say it's been slightly neglected as I've been writing. Uh, and my social – I have a Facebook page, an author Facebook page, uh, also Ann Hillerman author. Very good. Kent, you are pretty good about posting to your – uh, Facebook page when you go bike riding. I, I love looking at your pictures and all your observations. Will you please tell everyone where we can find you on the web and social medias? Sure. Uh, my website is uh, com. I have an author Facebook page. You know, you can search me on the author on Facebook, find me very easily. I have an Instagram account. Um, and I have to be real honest, what I typically do is I send all of my posts to my social media person who decides how they're going to uh, go out on the various platforms. I just go out there biking, taking pictures, and writing. <laughs> I have someone else listen, do all the social some, media stuff for there's me. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. It, it's still a joy to look at it. Um, I I want to say that this has been one of my most fun interviews as a technician. Ann Hillerman and William Kent Kruger, you'll notice that we call William Kent Kruger Kent, that is the name he prefers, have just been fabulous today. Um, Anything, Ann, anyone in particular you want to give a shout out to? 
Well, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, the author James McGrath Morris, who's working on a biography of my dad, Tony Hillerman, for University of Oklahoma Press. And I, yeah, I've learned so much about my dad and his writing and his time in World War II. It's like the best thing ever. So, yeah, I'm just so grateful to Jamie for for, uh, doing this biography. And also, a quick shout out to our mutual friend, Margaret Cole, who is a wonderful, wonderful author. If people haven't discovered her books, look her up. She is just a great, great writer. Here, when here. is the book on when is the book on your dad due to to go to press? Um I I believe it's coming out uh next fall. James James McGrath Morris's deadline is the end of July to submit okay. the manuscript. So Okay. Yeah. And and Kent, you always give a shout out to your wife and I know women everywhere are swooning when you do that. Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else you'd like to give a shout out to? Well, I could. This could be an Oscar uh, thing where I thank everybody under the sun. It's okay, go right ahead. Uh, well, at this at this point, I'm going to give a shout out to all of the people who are working very hard to still put on our international mystery convention, Bowser Khan. Uh, which has been canceled as an in-person convention, but will be held virtually this fall. I can't imagine the difficulty that they they have uh, had in trying to adjust to all of the demands of the coronavirus. Thanks to them for soldiering on. There you go. They are a fine group. And and it was the one time I was going to actually cross the country, (coughs) excuse me, to go to a conference and – I was looking forward to broadcasting live from there, and it didn't happen. So my tra- my traveling suitcase is in the closet, locked away, <laughs> not to be seen for another year. Um, thank you again, both of you, for spending your precious time with me. Uh, and listeners, it has just been a delight to have you here. Um, I, I want to thank Ann Hillerman and Kent Kruger. I hope you go to their websites, find their books on online retailers. If you feel safe enough to go to a bookstore, if not order them from your favorite bookstore, I don't care what bookstore bookstores are bookstores and they're important. Um, and please leave a review, letting them know how much you enjoy their work. It really means a lot. I mean, it, Honestly, it means a lot personally to writers, so so please leave a review. Thank you so much, Ann and Kent. Kent, you're next to ch- decide who you want to interview, okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, thank I'll you, Pam. You. You're so welcome, and I want to thank everyone for listening, and thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see you later, and stay safe. <laughs>
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.